0: at LuckyLandSlots.com.
1: Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 20th, 2018. The A Liberal is a Conservative Who's Been to Jail edition I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, DC, where there is massive pre-Christmas jackhammering behind me. I think they're they're perhaps taking down a whole street to bring in a new holiday Christmas tree or something, and there's huge amounts of noise, so pardon that noise. Fortunately, most of the noise you will hear will be the dulcet tones of John Dickerson of CBS This Morning, who's in New York. Hello, John. How
3: who was it who stabled the word dulcet to tones? And can we Unbind the two. Uh, there's sure. so
0: many little pairings. Like that stark contrast yes. has been bothering oh me a lot lately. Like, every hate contrast it. is stark.
3: It's yes.
2: Like annoying. Yeah. Totally. What would I be a that. kind of contrast that would not be stark? A no, well, it wouldn't surprising like, a soft contrast. contrast?
0: would yeah. like, you...
2: Mm. You... not very much of a contrast. Yeah.
0: That's not very um, But a contrast is is
2: its contrast definitionally stark? Is a contrast definitely, definitionally stark.
0: That's why I think that you don't need it, and yet we put it in anyway. Yeah, we could make a list of these one day. Yeah, I've been trying really hard to avoid them lately, and then you realize that it's almost like a beat is missing if it's not there.
3: No, it's right. okay.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I it
2: think is it's okay. okay. But, but, let but that you, beat it don't. does feel like a beat is missing. Yeah. Anyway, that's okay. that other voice, that less dulcet tone, less <laughs> no, dulcet, that even more dulcet. That, tone.
0: that could be my middle name. Les uh, (laughs) Dulcet.
2: Dulcet, it could be the name if you ever have a, a daughter, Emily. You could name her Dulcet Bazelon. That is Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine, also with John in New York. Hello.
0: Hello.
2: On this week's show, the Senate passes a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill. The president might sign it if the House passes it, too. We have dogs and cats living together. There is snow in July. Is everything now? Is it politics back to normal in Washington? That was a joke. Uh, Then is Michael Flynn getting railroaded? And then the extent of Russian online meddling in the 2016 election is revealed in this report to the Senate Intelligence Committee, as is the extent of Facebook's incredible sellout of its users' privacy. What do these two stories have in common? Plus, we will have a cocktail chatter and a Slate Plus segment about that wonderful Charles Barkley friendship story that made its way around the internet. We will talk about that. If you want to become a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to get this bonus segment and other bonus segments on other Slate podcasts. We are here to consider the passage, the unlikely passage, perhaps, of the First Step Act, a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill, a small one, let us be clear, but it passed the Senate overwhelmingly. This bill has a fascinating history. Its passage has been driven by the unlikely force of Jared Kushner, who seems to have been turned into a softy on criminal justice by the fact that his own father went to federal prison, furthering the adage, which was the title of the show, which is a, a liberal as a conservative who's been to prison, which actually, if you think about it for this administration, will probably mean by, by the second term of the Trump administration will be very liberal because they will all be in jail by then if current trends hold. But, John, what has to happen for this this bill, this brave little bipartisan bill, to become a law.
3: Well, it has to pass the uh, it has to pass the House and then uh, make sure there's no. They have to reconcile whatever differences there might be, and then the
2: president has to sign it.
0: Civics lesson, John Dickerson. And, Woo.
2: Well, I, it, it, yeah, and all that has to happen before when? Well, bef- before the new year.
0: Before the Congress disbands, or you, else they have to start over. Right, right? right. But I think, I mean, there's a lot of momentum for this unlikely um this this little bill that could yeah. uh and you're right to give credit to Jared Kushner but we should also give credit to a lot of people who fought really hard for this bill and also fought to make sure it did not become so watered down that it was worthless um we've had versions of efforts at bipartisan criminal justice reform in congress for years like going back to the Obama administration um and the coalition for it has been growing on the left and on the right. I mean, this is the reason this bill is going through is that the Koch brothers are on board, a conservative group called Right on Crime. There is a real conservative, um, serious lobbying force for criminal justice reform right now for a couple reasons. One is libertarian, the sort of notion of government overreach. One is cost. Um, you know, the federal prison system is a tiny drop in the bucket of mass incarceration. We're talking about less than 200,000 people in prison compared to 2.2 million people in prison and jail across the United States. But this notion that we're just spending too much, that we um, went too far and kind of gorging on toughened crime in the 80s and 90s is really um, affecting conservatives as well as liberals. And then finally, you have this really important constituency of people, evangelical Christians who believe in redemption and think people should have a second chance. And so what you see as part of the reform package in this bill is um – you know, some lifting of mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent offenders. And then other people are going to be able to earn more good time credits and get out earlier and also an effort to actually bring um, more education and other rehabilitation programs into prison so that when people get out, they're in better shape to come back to be returning citizens, which is like what some of them want to be called.
3: The so-called earned time credits. Yes,
0: I'm sorry. I no, call no, it good time. It's, no, no, no. Right. Good
3: time is good. No, good time is right. Good time is behavioral. And then earned time is you take the classes and do that stuff to help you with uh, when you get out at the, so that it presumably reduces Re- recidivism, which Rand says actually there is a, a correlation between those who've um, taken classes And those who don't in terms of going back to Joe.
0: Right. I mean, one of the things uh, I like about this bill is that it has a lot of empirical support for the tactics it's using. It's thinking about what we've learned about how you prevent people from reoffending and, you know, where we've gone just so way too far in diminishing returns in terms of deterring crime by incarcerating people for very long periods. There's a recognition that that has gone too far and that we can pull back and we can do it safely you know, it 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 also has to be said, like, this is not some huge change in American sentencing law. It's not going to affect hundreds of thousands of people. But it is a first step. It's a place to start. And what happened last year, which seemed like a real danger for this bill, was that... Um, In an effort to get it passed, it was going to be stripped of all of its sentencing reform provisions and only be about people's experience in prison. And the push from the reformers on both sides was, no, we got to try to do these things together. We're never going to get sentencing reform across the line unless it's part of this larger package. And so that insistence, I think, was really smart. So,
2: Emily, one thing I am kind of unable to understand looking at the bill and the provisions of it, is actually which are the conservative parts and which are the liberal parts.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I think one reason for that is that those agendas are merging in criminal justice reform. Preventing recidivism is something that's on the program for both sides. And, you know, the kinds of relatively small but meaningful sentencing reform, those things, too, I mean, we think of those things as being more typically progressive, um, but actually conservatives are really willing to recognize at this point, um, like I was saying before, that we're just wasting a lot of money needlessly, um, needlessly putting people in prison for way too long.
3: And I wonder, David, if your um, difficulty distinguishing, which I share some of as well, is a result of the fact that a lot of the... um, a lot of this issue was always clouded by politics. And so anything that made life easier in prison or tried to reduce recidivism through releasing people early or change the, the sentencing for cocaine versus uh, uh, powder cocaine versus crack cocaine was uh, Democrats worried about being painted as soft on crime. And partially what's happened is just this group of conservatives that's grown up from really the ideological wing, either the evangelical wing, starting with Chuck Colson. Uh, disgraced well uh, Watergate uh, conspirator in the Nixon administration started long before our current present day and then also the sort of big government wing the thinking on the conservative side has created the space along with falling crime rates and other things for democrats to you know to to create this um uh, to create this coalition so that it part of its politics and therefore the specifics of the case um, can be uh, a little murkier because they don't have that that charged political charge.
0: And it was really interesting to watch Tom Cotton try to attack this bill from the traditional tough on crime law and order position and really get nowhere. I mean, he had this amendment which the reformers succeeded in beating down. He sponsored it with um Senator Kenny Kennedy from Louisiana and it just didn't go anywhere. And I was fascinated to read about how the sort of specter of Willie Horton was floating over this bill. This is always true with criminal justice reform, that the fear is the bad headline of the usually dark skinned person who gets out and commits a crime and ruins your political future. And they were able to push back on that. And in my research I'm reporting for my book, um, which is about criminal justice reform, too. I've really noticed this with these new district attorneys who are getting elected, that they're willing to say, like, look... I'm going to try some reforms and it's not going to be perfect. Like somebody might screw up along the way, but I'm not necessarily going to tear down, you know, the entire alternative to incarceration program I set up because of one bad actor. That's like a if we can make that shift in American politics away from letting those headlines drive criminal justice policy, that would be huge.
3: The ghost of Willie Horton was uh, in all the uh, accounting the behind the scenes accounts is basically that's what the president was the president was less positively motivated than he was worried about having a Willie Horton problem. The, the, the Horton issue, of course, came up in 1994 when Joe Biden voting for the Clinton administration's uh, crime bill said that the idea um, with that legislation was to, quote, lock Willie Horton up in jail.
0: Right. And whenever that's your image, like if that's the poster child you're putting forward, you end up with like harsher sentences and more people in prison. If you're able to think about, you know, the the touching story of someone getting out who's been in way too long or someone who's being exonerated, either of those images can help counter that. And I think we finally saw that happen this time because of Trump's own pardons. Or not pardoned, but Trump commuted the sentence of Alice Marie Johnson. And according to the stories about what he's been thinking, um, advocates like Van Jones and Kim Kardashian West have been successful in getting him to think about that positive image.
2: But I would push a little bit on that, Emily. Yeah. We have seen no movement at all that I've noticed around violent offenders and violent offenders are the majority Mm. of offenders in American prisons. I think the like the, the strong majority of. Offenders in well, it depends how I, you define no, violent, but
0: go ahead and then I'll talk about
2: that. But the constituency for shortening sentences and making conditions easier for people who've committed acts of violence uh, is, not, uh, is not nearly as active and as large as the constituency for, you know, oh, the low-level drug dealer who, who you know, merely sold, sold a bit too much marijuana that day. And so I wonder if there is – this is called a first-step act – but actually, if there's a second step to be had, because the second step – f- well, first of all, the second step, if you're just staying within the federal prison system, is a pretty – that is, as you said, is a very small piece of this whole archipelago of, of American um, criminal justice. But there just isn't a, a lot of enthusiasm to start letting murderers and rapists and and people who have committed really violent assaults out on the streets, okay, even so though I think we should. <laughs>
0: Um, So two things. One is, let's just talk about the federal small piece of the pie for a second. If you're just thinking about that, which you're right, is a small fraction of the whole, half of the people in federal prison, I believe, are drug offenders. So in that small context... Uh, reform, sentencing reform that affects nonviolent offenders is significant.
2: But drug offenders does not mean not violent. Drug offenders can be violent.
0: Mm, I think that those people are there if they were there also for violent crimes. I Indeed. don't think we would classify them as drug offenders. So I'm pretty sure they do count most of them as nonviolent. But I'm not totally sure how the fractions break down. My point is just in the federal system you can significantly affect the prison population without reaching into the um, group of people who've actually committed violence, I'm pretty sure. Let's move, though, to the larger picture because you're asking a bigger, really important question. You're right that all, a lot of these early criminal justice reform efforts only affect nonviolent offenders. And the big question is whether they are all first steps or whether we stop here. And if we stop here, you're also completely right. We're not going to make a real dent in mass incarceration across the country. Here's my hope and my argument for why there could and should be more steps. First of all, a lot of the people who are in prison classified as violent felons, did things that did not necessarily involve actually hurting someone. So, for example, a charge that gets brought a lot is breaking and entering into a dwelling. In a lot of states, if you break and enter into someone's house um, and you never see anyone, maybe you thought the house was empty or maybe not, but you never encounter a human being, that's still classified as a violent crime because the idea is you could see someone, you could hurt someone, and that's enough. And there are other crimes like that on the kind of margins or, or t- they're not really marginal because there are significant numbers of people. But anyway, my point is there are a lot of people who are convicted of, quote, violent felonies who, if when you look at what the facts of the case are, they are not, like, frightening violent crimes. I don't want to minimize all of this harm because that's what it can start sounding like you're doing. But you can get really far into criminal justice reform before you start letting out Murders and rapists and even armed robbers—like there are a lot of other people in there. Those three categories are really small relative to the whole. Now we might also think those people are in, are in prison for too long. I don't mean to like be cutting off that avenue, but if you're not ready to touch those categories right now, there is still a lot of extra, like wasteful, harmful prison time.
2: Emily, uh, is the reason that America's prison population is so huge that we have more violent crime, we prosecute more of the people who do commit violent crime and other crime, or that we hold people longer? Or is it a mix of those three? It's, it, what, one thing I don't understand is, like is, why is it that we have 10 times the prison population uh, per capita that other countries have? Is it because we're more criminous or not?
0: In the early 1970s, the United States had the same rate of incarceration as Scandinavia, right? So, like, our most serene, peaceful, (laughs) non-incarcerating friends in Europe. After that, their rate of incarceration has basically stayed the same, and our number of people in prison has quintupled since then. One of the reasons that started to happen in the United States was we had a rise in crime um, in the 70s and into the 80s. And then there was this enormous overreaction to that in terms of harsh sentencing laws and prosecutors charging felonies much more than they used to. And I say overreaction because when you look at the graph, the prison population just skyrockets. And then you see the crime rate start to come down way before the incarceration rate starts to come down Just a little bit. And so it is true that there was this uh, sense in the 70s that we needed more incarceration for deterrence. But we've just so wildly outstripped that at this point that this kind of sentencing reform, like, that's why we need so much more of it. And the other thing that is really interesting to me is more recent research on the way in which going to jail or prison actually causes people to reoffend, or certainly is associated with higher rates of reoffending. So, this is the idea that prison and jail is criminogenic, like carcinogenic. And there are some solid studies supporting this. And when you start taking that account into effect, it really looks like our levels of incarceration are just like wildly counterproductive. And, you know, they have the effect of really weakening and troubling communities, especially poor communities of color, and also in reducing respect and trust for law enforcement. Right. Like if the criminal justice system is seen as brutal and unfair, then people are less likely to cooperate with the police and. To come in as witnesses. And then the, the the whole point is public safety, right? Like that should be the point of our criminal justice system, keeping us safe. And so if we have a system that is operating counter to that and also causing enormous suffering, there's a lot wrong. Anyway, I, I got on my soapbox, but did I also answer your question along the way?
3: <laughs> I would just, I would recommend um, the New America uh, paper on this How Conservatives Turned Against Mass Incarceration by um, David Dagan, I think it is, and Stephen. Tell us, I guess Stephen,
0: tell us. Yeah, it it
3: has one. It's great for a number of reasons. One thing it has, though, is the history of the crime rise that that Emily talks about. And and it connects it to the political um, uh, situation, which was essentially Republicans trying to find a way to recapture the middle class from Democrats um, in 1968. Romney, Governor George Romney, the father of Mitt, went into the inner city to try to understand the problem. Richard Nixon and George Wallace did the, took the opposite route, which is to use fear of violence in the cities to beat Democrats for the vote of the middle class. That then, when they got into office, led to a lot of these federal responses to crime, uh, and and the football was kicked back and forth, uh, as we've already talked about a little.
0: And you know what else is interesting about that, John, which um, I wonder what you think about. When I was looking at the presidential Races and whether they, um, you know, were doing, were whether candidates were fear mongering over violent crime. The two Republican candidates who did not do that are John McCain and Mitt Romney. And they're also the people who lost.
3: That's right. No, yeah. this is a great question about uh, where the Republican Party is now and where politics in general is, which is the niceties that, um, and Lynn Vavrick and John Sides write about this in their book on identity and, and elections, but the the political class stayed away from certain issues. For certain periods of time, Nixon and Wallace clearly played on it um, and Reagan uh, did uh, as well.
0: And H.W., right, with the Willie Horton ad.
3: Yeah, although that, as we know, has a a complicated history. What he because it raised versus crime, but he certainly played on the crime piece for absolutely sure. I mean, the first set of those ads were were not about an African-American. It was about the revolving door with white prisoners going through. The images was of white prisoners. So crime, though, in that context, not to be obtuse here, was specifically meant to excite in uh, voters the idea that people from the inner cities were going to come after them. So even if they used white prisoners, it was to excite certain kinds of feelings.
2: So my last question here for you, John, is this this bill is being depicted as well, this nice moment of bipartisanship and and we have 87 mm-hmm. senators voting for it and perhaps it will pass the House and the president will sign it. Uh, and yet, in in some ways, this is a s- just I- I- an extraordinary evidence of how weak mm-hmm. the political s- institutions are, that, that this bill essentially was ready to pass years ago, that Mitch McConnell declined to let it get up for a vote, even mm-hmm. though it would have had a majority support because he didn't – he chose not to – he didn't want to give Obama a victory, he didn't want to give Democrats a victory, and he didn't want to expose people in his caucus to having to take a vote that was, was tricky. Um, it's, it's, it's incredibly – the system must be so weak that a bill this feeble, that a bill this, this weak, that does so little, is painted as a grand legislative triumph. That is a that seems to me a really bad sign mm-hmm. about where we are, not a good sign. I
3: think uh, I think mostly what you're saying is right. I think um, progress is progress, and the 2600. And I know you're not saying this, but the, you know the 2600 people who are uh, going to retroactively have their sentencing changed because of the disparity between powder and crack cocaine are are, you know, that's a genuinely good thing. They're is, real people. Yeah, but but your larger point is right, which is this is only a, a, a beginning with the um, questions of dealing with the criminal justice system. Again, I would go back to that that New America paper, which makes a very good case, and it was written in 2015, which supports your point, very good case about that this is an example of something called transpartisanship, which is that the ideological parts of both parties became interested in this issue for their own different reasons, and that they then pushed on their leaders, and it was born from the from the ground up, which means that basically uh, lawmakers had it kind of forced on them. But again, that's in 2015 that this was all named and identified, and it has now taken, you know, more than, it's taken three years to get this done. So it's not the elites in the office who came together in the kind of image that people sometimes talk about, let's now let us reason together. They were sort of forced to by their parties, and then I, I'd like to underscore your point earlier about the fact that, yeah, this is a gimme. I mean, this should have been, and there are lots of things like that. If, um, and Jennifer Rubin has a piece pointing this out and it talks about some things Nancy Pelosi is going to try to do that if you let members of the Senate just vote on what had lots of co-sponsors, you'd get lots and lots, and lots of bipartisan stuff passing on immigration reform, on gun legislation, um, on infrastructure. You can get big bipartisan numbers The the votes are just not getting on the floor and in my interviews recently with bob corker and john kennedy they both made the exact same complaint which is that you come up to the senate and you don't get to vote and and that that's incredibly frustrating about the job and and that's mitch mcconnell but it's also mitch mcconnell protecting members from their fear of voting um so it's not just on mcconnell it's also on lots of members
0: Can I say one more thing about why I feel hopeful about this bill beyond the people whose lives it will directly affect? There's signaling that happens with federal legislation. The national press picks it up. We start talking about these issues in a global way. Um, Even if the numbers are not as significant as state and local reform would be, it gets an airing. And if the lesson that, you know, Trump and other... um, people who talk a big, like tough on crime line, if the lesson they take from this is that there is political goodwill and value in reducing mass incarceration and reducing over-punishment, that would be really significant.
2: This episode of The Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says, moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's a u r a frames dot com. Use code gabfest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. General Michael Flynn had a weird day in court this week. He went <laughs> to a courthouse expecting to plead guilty to one count of lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russian officials before the uh, Trump was inaugurated. To then be be sent on his way without having to go to prison. And instead, he found himself on the receiving end of a rebuke from Judge Emmett Sullivan. Judge Sullivan was clearly infuriated by what, what he perceived as Flynn's lack of contrition about his very serious crimes and Flynn's or Flynn's lawyers' attempts to spin what Flynn had done and make it seem as though he had been entrapped somehow by FBI agents. So, Emily, why did Flynn appear to get himself in trouble with Judge Sullivan and and what what are the consequences for him likely to be Well it's
0: really interesting and strange sentencing hearing usually when the government is saying you don't need to put someone in jail they've cooperated we are in favor of a relatively lenient punishment the judge says like oh good I'm glad you guys all agree and that's that In this case Judge Sullivan seemed really concerned that Flynn had done worse things than the government was um, putting forward uh, and and that he deserved to go to prison. And I think a lot of this or I'm not sure, but part of what had happened, obviously, before the sentencing hearing was Flynn's lawyers whipping up this notion that he'd been, you know, manhandled by the FBI because they interviewed him without telling him that it was a crime to lie to FBI agents. This is obviously a kind of line that Trump had picked up and it was sort of whipping around right-wing media and this notion that Flynn had been treated unfairly. For me, it's been really bracing and a relief to see how many times, um, uh, you know, kind of unfair, conspiracy-minded whipping up of frenzies get just totally pierced in the um, light of the courtroom. When you actually have to stand up in front of a judge and speak under oath or speak in an official court proceeding... Turns out you're much less likely to make up shit. And I think that was what we saw. Sullivan wanted to know, you know, whether Flynn's lawyers were really serious and making this accusation. And he's a judge who in the past has come down really hard on the government for misconduct. So the fact that he um, kind of ferreted out the truth of that matter, I think, was important. And then I think you just have this... Judge who just thinks like Flynn had a really trusted high up position in the American government, which he misused and holding him accountable during Trump's campaign for being an undisclosed agent of the Turkish government yeah,
2: um, yeah so so John, what is it that he that Flynn did really that is troublesome and or possibly illegal?
3: Well, he lied about his con- contacts with and the connection the case contacts with the Russian ambassador and what they talked about and portrayed it as the kind of getting to know you of a beginning of a new administration when, in fact, he was in regular contact with President Trump and his other President Trump's other aides about sending a signal to Russia that, um, that they... Uh, that the administ- the Trump administration was going to be kinder to Russia than the Obama administration and not to overreact to the sanctions um, placed on Russians by the Obama administration. The second problem is the one Emily alluded to, which was that he was operating as an agent of the Turkish government, penning op-eds um, in support of uh, uh, the extradition of a person that, that Erdogan in Turkey thinks is responsible for a coup attempt in 2016 feeding President Trump, candidate Trump, and President Trump um, pro-Turkish lines on various things. There was an interview with David Sanger in which Erdogan's crackdown on the Turks after the the coup attempt. Uh, he was asked about it as a threat to um, kind of civil society, and President Trump, or then candidate Trump, basically said, what, you know, we're so great? In other words, basically totally letting Erdogan do do what he wanted. And then two colleagues of uh, Flynn's this week were also indicted For that Turkish scheme. But can I read just a brief portion of the judge's response that Emily was referring to? In the court proceeding, the judge said, do you believe the FBI had a legal obligation to warn Mr. Flynn that lying to the FBI was a federal crime? And Flynn's lawyer had to say, no, your honor. Then the judge, is it your contention that Mr. Flynn was entrapped by the FBI? No, your honor. Do you believe Mr. Flynn's rights were violated by the fact that he did not have a lawyer present for the interview? No, Your Honor. Do you believe his rights were violated by the fact that he may have been dis- dissuaded from having a lawyer present for the interview? No, Your Honor. All of the things that had been floated on Twitter and by the president and various others were, to Emily's point, you know, delineated there in the courtroom uh, and, and pierced by having to say it in a proceeding rather than just a hot take on Twitter.
2: But but I actually this this slightly um, I, I'm not sure how I feel about this. In of course in court, the judge has all the power. The judge is like the the judge holds his fate in his hand, and so of course the the lawyers are going to be like, oh, oh, yes, his his vi- rights weren't violated by not wait. His why do you think that? Because prejud- if you
0: had a credible um, yeah. case, if you had evidence that your client's rights are violated, you argue that forcefully to the judge. Of
2: course, and you don't plea. No you yes, but at, at that moment, at the at the moment of um, I mean, it's very hard to to make an argument in the face of someone who holds total power over you. But you're, you're assuming you're that the only... judge was
0: like not genuinely asking those questions, whereas it seems to me totally possible that he was like he was concerned about the possibility that the government had engaged in misconduct and had entrapped Flynn in some way. I don't think mm. like I don't Doesn't think the judge like had that. made up his mind in advance.
2: Doesn't sound. Like but
3: here's that. the I think here's the other the stronger argument, David, which is that let's imagine let's think back to the criminal justice system for poor People of color who are who are entrapped and they are entrapped and they can't see their way clear. They don't have the money for a lawyer. They don't have uh, the means to argue their way out of the entrapment. And so they take a plea deal because they get a shorter sentence relative to the one they got if they try to fight it in court with with lesser means. And since they've taken a plea deal, even though they are still firm in their commitment to their own innocence, because the system's been stacked against them, they take a plea deal. And then, of course, in front of a judge, they can't undo their plea deal. So that would be a way of looking at it. Now, obviously, that's not the case with Flynn, but I think that's what you're right. saying. I mean, David.
2: Flynn knows this. Yeah, well, I, I don't I'm not sure what I'm saying. I just I, I guess I'm I'm concerned that we would assume that because the lawyers had to go belly up and and prostrate themselves in front of the judge, that the lawyers and Flynn that there's absolutely nothing to whatever he was saying about it. It's, it's I don't even know. I don't know whether there's nothing to what he was saying about it. But I do know that in a position where you hold no cards and where you are totally subject to the decision that that a much more powerful entity is going to make, your inclination is to prostrate yourself and to make yourself agreeable yeah, because but the judge is the
0: neutral arbiter here and the reason they held no cards is they had no facts like <laughs> right. Flynn was a top government official there was no reason yes, for the fbi to warn him like right. hey mr flynn don't true. lie to us yes, now like that's not this is that's true. not, that's <laughs> like they, that's right.
2: not flynn in the is law a bad actor. this
3: is where my analogy I, breaks I, down yeah. considerably because they didn't yes. plant a yes. gun on him these are all things that he right. should have right. known
2: I, can i actually can i dig into two two pieces about that one is there's this argument that some people are making. Well, he's a general. He served his country in uniform, gave 33 years as, as a as a military officer. Therefore, he deserves mercy and wider latitude. The the court should be very kind to him. Does that argument hold water with you guys? It holds negative water for me. Yeah, I think water the judge agrees out with you. For me. I mean,
0: I also am underwhelmed by that because I feel like the way in which people's life circumstances are seen as mitigating of punishment tends to – overvalue the things that make people, like, wealthy and powerful as opposed to poor and downtrodden, and that bothers me as a general proposition, right? So, like, he's, a, he's this important general, he's had this life of service, also comes out of, um, you know, certain privileges that get you to that position, whereas right. if you come in and you're, like, destitute and someone can't make that argument in your favor, that gets hold against you.
2: He has a higher responsibility, you could argue, right. given the oath he's taken and the service he's given is to not lie, to not betray his country, And and to betray, uh, you know, the, the Constitution. And and so therefore you would you you would make the case that actually this is a person who's ought to be subject to greater punishment, which I think military justice in general, military justice is is more harsh for that very reason. Like if you're a soldier who who commits a crime, I think the punishment you face as a soldier in the military justice system, is often stronger than the punishment you might face in the civil justice system yes, because of that notion of discipline and and your higher responsibility.
3: But in these in this case, since he's outside of that, um, I don't think I think it's it's okay for society to take if you believe that not every crime is the total sum of your contribution to society. Then why not? Mm-hmm. Why doesn't your other contribution? matter somehow in making you know restitution to society for what you've done.
0: And I feel like that's a totally fine plausible position. Like you know,
2: except John, except we overprivileged certain kinds of things well, that's and I what think I was one arguing. thing we overprivilege is military military service gets gets people and military service isn't an, an amazing it's a service. It is an amazing thing that people do for the nation, but it is not the only form of service, nor is it necessarily the highest form of service. Well, that's it, fine. And especially that's not, if you get to be a general, a high status general, it's not even, you know, it's it's that's a high status position well, with it with an enormous amount of prestige and well, and and those power are about the
3: but that's a, but that's a different question. That's about how you rank this against other kinds of things. I thought your question was about whether this should matter in this with the specific case with him. Right. And it should matter to but some I, degree, maybe not as much as somebody might want, maybe less than somebody, but, but it should matter.
2: Another question, John, actually for you, which is goes to the lame duckness of this, so that Flynn is getting in trouble for things that he said to uh, Ambassador Kislyak in between the time mm-hmm. President Trump was elected and the time he was inaugurated. And, and in particular, in response to sanctions that the lame duck Obama administration was imposing on Russia for its various forms of interference. And I, while I, it is clear, you know, based on the evidence that, that Flynn lied to the FBI and uh, that he was, in fact, conducting a kind of sub-Rosa foreign policy with Kislyak at a time when he was merely a private citizen representing a candidate who had not yet become president, I actually have sympathy on the substantive issue here. It's like that we do have to – the fact that we have this quite long lame duck period and you have a new administration coming in, and that new administration does have to build ties, and it does have to send signals about what it's going to do. And so there's yeah. – we we are – we don't want to have two foreign policies operating at once. That's yeah. a problem. On the other hand, we want to make sure that the new administration comes in and comes in with with a clear idea of what it's doing and with a plan yeah. and able to execute what it wants to execute. And that requires some degree of preparation and even signaling.
3: Yeah. I, well, a couple of things. That doesn't mean he gets to lie about it. That's the one problem. So yeah, so that's that's for sure true. <laughs> but, right. But to your I mean yes, as somebody who thinks that, you know, candidates should be forced to name their um, cabinet and, uh, national security officials like at the beginning of their campaigns, I'm all for it.
0: Not even the middle of their campaign, the very beginning, beginning, the first day.
3: Because how you pick people and why you pick the people you pick, uh, tells us something about you. So I think the Michael Flynn pick and the fact that the president's had more than, you know, 60% turnover of his top officials, um, tells us something about his disordered approach and he's hooked a lot of people up to, uh, his disordered approach, um, And so it would have been nice to know that before he was elected. But, um... So, but I, but I generally am sympathetic, David. I think in this specific case, so there's actually the Logan Act, which you won't be charged under. But that as a private citizen, you're not allowed to conduct foreign policy. So that's one problem. And because that goes to your point earlier about having two foreign policies at the same time, I think in an issue in a situation where there is ongoing sensitive national security policy about which you know something more because you've been briefed by the National Security Advisor, as Flynn had by Susan Rice while it's a good thing to get to know the ambassadors around town on the kind of key, most sensitive thing of the moment, I think you stay out of the way um, when there's ongoing... And and by the way, you know more than we than than we knew publicly at the time because you've been briefed, I think you have an obligation to, to stay out of the way.
0: I mean, the concern about this was that people in the Justice Department, like Sally Yates, the Obama official at the time, were worried that he could be compromised because the Russians knew he had done this. Right, right? The, I th- mean, that's... that the
3: lying about it made him compromised.
0: Exactly. Hey, one last thing related um, to this topic and the broad sense of the Mueller investigation. There's a story in the Wall Street Journal today, Thursday, that... Um, William Barr, who, of course, is Trump's pick for attorney general, wrote this unsolicited memo in June to the Justice Department in which he called the Mueller probe fatally misconceived. He called Mueller's theory of just investigating Trump for obstruction of justice grossly irresponsible. This is a 20 page memo he wrote on his own to say why he thought the president could not be investigated in this way that Mueller was doing. Uh, I hope they release this memo and talk about it a lot during uh, Bill Barr's Senate confirmation hearings.
2: What Who? I, what I would like to know is what kind of person writes an unsolicited memo Well, for which he presumably was not paid. That is, that is a sign of mental illness. That is a person who should not <laughs> ha, have high office.
3: Well, he is a strong public service. It does explain, though, in part wh- where he came, or it might explain, anyway, where he came from out of the list of possibles because... Um,
0: Indeed.
2: He was a bit of a surprise pick, frankly. Yeah. Bill Barr was my first boss. Really? The, really? Did you Justice hang out Department. with him? I was a paralegal in the Justice Department. No, I never met him. But I, you know, I remember, you know, I, I was at the Justice Department in 1992, late 1992. Did he think you did a good job? He was, he was the Attorney General. Um, he did. Yeah, yeah, so you cleared he the got, bar. He gave me a commendation.
0: I mean, one more thing to say about Barr is that because he is well credentialed and really smart if he wants to take down the Mueller investigation he is going to be a formidable opponent and a huge ally of Trump's in doing that now it may be that by the time he gets confirmed this is you know the the horses out of the barn I mean Whitaker who's like Trump's you know uh handmaiden has not succeeded in stopping the Mueller investigation or slowing it down as far as we can tell. So but it, it does seem um, interesting that he that that Barr is the author of this memo and that his position is now so clearly outlined.
2: That's chumbacasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. DW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: We are going to now conflate two stories. There was a report to the Senate by a digital research company named New Knowledge that revealed the extraordinary extent of Russian online meddling in the election by the Russian Internet Research Agency. It was meddling that seemed aimed at trying to elect Donald Trump, at suppressing black voter turnout. At discrediting democracy, at sowing division, at, at sort of building up organizations that would create tribal divisions in America, that would cause dissension, that would increase distrust. By almost any measure, I would argue this was was the most successful intelligence operation in world history. I mean, it truly was effective. It 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 had everything it sought to do. It succeeded in doing. The, president, or the candidate they wanted to lose, Hillary Clinton, indeed lost, and American trust in institutions was shattered, and they got a president who has continued the, the messages that they, were, that they were spreading themselves uh, on their own. Also this week, here's the second story. In the New York Times, Emily's colleagues did fine, fine work to reveal the breathtaking nature of Facebook's betrayal of its users' trust. Essentially, Facebook over the past several years has been giving away all of your private data, all the data that you thought was just Facebook's to have, even your private messages to dozens upon dozens of corporate partners without informing you, without asking your consent. These two stories have in common, I think, the ways in which we are victims of technology that was supposed to liberate and educate us in which we are now finds ourselves strangely subject to them. And at the mercy of them and confused by them and intimidated by them. So, Emily, first of all, what was there anything in this report about Russian meddling that surprised you or that, that changed how you had been thinking about what, what's been going on?
0: It it just affirmed a lot of um, facts that were already out there and kind of nailed them down and buttoned them up to a larger degree, I would say. And the evidence about, you know, these deliberate tactics to suppress the African-American vote had also, we sort of knew that. But again, like the extent of it, um, the effectiveness of it, it was just really um, quite... a. A read. So, yeah, I don't think it's that like we learned some huge new bombshell thing, but to have um, all of this laid out in not one, but actually two reports just shows the extent of this and should raise for us this big question about what we do about it. I mean, one thing to mention here is that. As long as you think of this as a foreign intelligence operation, it's illegal. Like the Russians, the whoever's aren't allowed to mess with our elections. But if people are doing this domestically, it's much less clear what laws are violating. And there was also a story in The Times... Today on Thursday, I know where
2: you're coming with that, right? Like the same
0: company, New Knowledge, was doing what they call an experiment on behalf of Doug Jones in Alabama. Doug Jones, the senatorial candidate who defeated the favored um, Republican Roy Moore in November. They were doing something similar, divisive tactics, trying to get, you know, bots to swarm around divisive Facebook posts that would suppress the Republican vote in Alabama. So, you know, these tactics are out there, and I'm not exactly sure what we are going to do about them, but we should really be trying to figure that out.
3: And and, uh, and there are different constituencies. So as consumers take the bait less, which is very hard um Because these issues are designed um, and we should talk or maybe I will in a second about the correlation between the issues that are caused to sow division when it's um, Russians and then the way in which the president uses those same same issues. I mean, Bob Corker, when I talked to him recently, said that his biggest problem with President Trump is that he uses division and stokes division to separate the country for political gain. Well, that's essentially what the Russians are, are accused of here. Um, and these issues all focus around values and identity. And what Lynn Vavrik and John Sides write about in their book on ad- identity crisis about the 2016 election is that these divisions existed in America. What happened in 2016 is that they became the central issue for some voters, that, that, that President Trump and, and we now have to say the, the Russians as well activated these issues. And so while you may have held these views before, what happened is they became the driving force in your vote. Uh, or or in the case of African-Americans, the driving force to keep you from voting, and that moving those ideas, activating them into the first place for your thinking about the election um, is part of what happened last time around. And it seems to me if you were the leader of a country where that was taking place in a traditional model of a presidency, you would seek to try to heal a country that that thusly activated. But as I've just said, the problem is that the president was sure. using similar tactics.
2: There was a brilliant essay by Masha Gessen arguing, I thought really interestingly, that the propaganda that was spread by by Russians and then and then um, megaphoned by many Americans wasn't that sophisticated. It wasn't all lies. It wasn't even all pointed in one direction, that, that it was going in all kinds of directions. Some of it was quite crude. Some of it was just weird. It was cacophonous. Mm-hmm. And that word is really useful. And what she points out is that, that in a totalitarian state – what propaganda tries to do is not necessarily point people towards a specific direction. It's to take away your ability to perceive what reality is, mm-hmm. to believe that there is a clear verifiable truth. That is definitely what seems to have happened to us. That is what is happening to us. is people, people's sense that there is a shared, we have a shared knowledge base. And from that shared knowledge base, you can derive logical conclusions and we can agree on, on, you know, not, we won't necessarily agree on everything, but we can agree uh, that certain things are truer than other things. And, we are working from the same set of facts. It is so poisonous and so dangerous what is happening. And in some ways I feel like what happened with the Russians and what this revealed is a, an attack that was much worse than 9-11, or even much worse than Pearl Harbor, you could argue, because it's fundamentally eroded and corrupted the very foundation of our political system, which is and our of democracy and our our shared sense of self, shared sense that we 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 have a common narrative and a common a common way to talk to each other and common ways to solve problems, and I, I am left so despondent about what's happening, and and so just with such a sense of how vulnerable we are, and then and then you and then to to rope in the Facebook story, then the Facebook story comes on top of that, and the realization that actually these platforms, these networks, which which in some ways could be some defense, they could be in in some ways a barrier or, or could help protect us, are just have no interest in that that they are purely out for some form of commercial gain. And, and the, the protection of the institutions, uh, which make their, you know, of their home country, the protection of the, the fundamental institutions of the United States are of no interest to them. And that is, that's a lonely, shitty place for us to be.
0: So I just, I, I basically sh- share your distress. I wonder, though, if we need to widen the lens and remember that, you know, this Russian operation, successful as it was, is not like the main political influencer. It's not the main reason that we're divided, right? I mean, the media coverage of political division, the way in which like various television and print outlets just picked up and continue to pick up, like, basically fake or not. I don't want to go with fake news because I think that's really not a helpful term anymore. anymore. But, you know, the incredibly credulous coverage of things that are lies, even if we know essentially that they're probably not true as we're covering them. That is a huge part of this. And I'm all for... You know, looking hard at the social media companies, especially Facebook and their role. I'm no fan, but I also think like we in the media need to think a little bit about the way we amplify these false messages once they start swirling around, because we're also responsible here.
3: There's no question about that. I think the again bringing the the president's actions here. I mean, um, you know, he and the, the. and this is i think distinct to him i haven't seen this in any of the reporting about the russians but i mean the the what the president has done and did as a candidate was hijack the the fact checking process and the and the traditional way of carrying news and use it to his advantage i mean so happy to be fact checked because it spread the story and he paid no price among his voters for being Called out for for an untruth, and I think it's still kept, it, that's still taking people. So there's there's the credulous, and we've talked about this a lot. But there's the credulous just repeating a, a claim. But then even when everybody rushes in with their fact checking, they're they're doing the work of a person who's trying to sow cacophony just as much as somebody who's just credulously passing something along. Uh, so obviously, Facebook has um, a, a whole new set of problems, both with users, but also possible legal problems. Um, uh, based on this possible sharing of of user data
0: because of this ftc consent, decree. consent decree that right. they're under that it, right they're sort of stuck the way to to like fawn their swords and do a big mea culpa with users would mean that they'd admit to violating the consent decree with the ftc right. and so they can't admit that and it's making their public statements look incredibly wishy-washy sorry didn't yeah, precisely
3: no, no no that was that was just exactly the important context we needed so the question is. People are leaving Facebook and, um, I mean, where do either one of you think we are in the history of something that still has 2.2 billion users or something like that? Um, uh, And is this a big turning point moment? Does this, um, I don't know, how big is this, I guess, is my question.
0: I mean, it seems to me like it's way too soon to sound the death knell for Facebook because of its gazillion users and also because it owns the companies that the youth are really excited about, right? You mean mean, Instagram? Yes, I mean Instagram. The youth. And WhatsApp, WhatsApp. which is internationally incredibly important, right? So because it has this other influence beyond the sort of more like old fogey brand, which Facebook itself, um, which a lot of kids aren't on, you know, the company is enormously influential. I guess... What I really wonder is whether it is possible to have a widely used social network that doesn't cause more harm than good. I totally get the impulse of people to connect. And I think there's been all kinds of serendipitous, wonderful things in people's lives on a variety of these platforms. And yet at the same time, they are a total scourge. They're like destroying really important things. And And I, I just feel like, you know... When I was watching this years ago and I was writing about online bullying, I was worried about it with regard to that kind of behavior. Um, some of that has gotten a little better, but it is like a whack a mole game where you know, one platform cleans up its act a little bit and then all the, like, horribleness goes somewhere else. And I I just wonder if we're stuck with that, if there's a way in which this viral kind of connection um, can be abused and manipulated in a way that, like, even if you had the best intended company, it it just can't both become widespread and benevolent at the same time.
1: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
2: So...
1: If we lose
2: here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again.
1: Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
2: Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are having a nice Christmas hot toddy, which I'm sure John will be having. I need the toddy. With, uh, little Dickersons. Uh, what will you be toddying about, John?
3: I'm um, talking about uh, something—a a letter that uh, Michael Beschloss posted on uh, on Twitter. Uh, this is one of its good and valuable uses, um, not the corrosive, awful majority of Twitter's uses, in my feeling. Um, yes. and it is a letter from Amelia Earhart to her um, fiance George Putnam, who asked um, who asked her to marry him about half a dozen times, and finally she said yes, but. Um, but barely, Uh, and I will read you the the prenuptial letter she wrote him. Dear GPP, there are some things which should be writ before we are married, things we have talked over before, most of them. You must know again my reluctance to marry, my feeling that I shatter thereby chances in work, which means most to me. I feel the move just now as foolish as anything I could do. I know there may be compensations, but have no heart to look ahead." On our life together, I want you to understand I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. If we can be honest, I think the difficulties which arise may best be avoided should you or I become interested deeply, or in passing, in anyone else. Please let us not interfere with the other's work or play, nor let the world see our private joys or disagreements. In this connection, I may have to keep some place where I can go to be myself now and then, For I cannot guarantee to endure at all times the confinement of even an attractive cage. I must exact a cruel promise, and that is you will let me go in a year if we find no happiness together. I will try to do my best in every way and give you that part of me you know and seem to want. Amelia Earhart.
0: Wow. It was hard to be a proto feminist, man.
3: And they 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 were married, and she ended up writing a letter to her mom uh, saying uh, that it t- that it didn't turn out to be as disastrous as she previously hoped. But um, but I mean, given the given what what I've just read, I think her bar was pretty low.
2: I mean, yeah, it's like I won't be faithful. We won't have to be together. We don't want have anything to do with our work. Yeah, I get a one year out. No matter how nice you make the cage, it's yeah. still a cage. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I don't think I want to be and, in it. Or I'm deeply ambivalent in any case. Right.
3: There's a deeper, you know, interesting backstory, which I, I don't know, the letter was long enough as it was. But anyway, yeah, it's um,
2: quite a letter. Emily. Emily, what is your chatter? I
0: feel like my chatter is kind of oddly related. You guys could see what you think. Um, I am taken this week by... A st- with, 3, 2, 1. I am taken this week with a story by Margot Sanger-Katz, um, a New York Times reporter, about... This really interesting effort to increase access to contraception in the state of Delaware. So Delaware has this um, this effort going on where, when a woman who's of childbearing age goes to the doctor, she's supposed to be asked, "Do you want to get pregnant in the next year?" And if she says the answer is no, then that day the healthcare provider is supposed to help her get the kind of birth control she needs. So no follow-up appointment. Like, we're just going to do this. We're not going to make you raise it and make a special visit. We're just going to ask you, and then we're going to offer you a variety of methods, including long-acting contraceptions, LARCs, they're called for short, which have a much higher rate of success in preventing pregnancy, even than birth control methods like the pill. Because, as this headline says, you can set it and forget it. It's just a really interesting idea of state policy effectively trying to help women um, help themselves. And uh, because we know that unplanned pregnancies um, are connected to lo- lots of problems for the kids who are born and for their their mothers, this just seems like a really promising effort, and I'm glad that Margot wrote about it.
2: I want to chatter about two things quickly. One, I don't know how I feel about it, but it's the most extraordinary thing. That crazy photo? Big- that chi- the photo in yeah, China? Yeah, Big Pixel Technology Corporation took a photograph or rather a series of photographs from the top of the oriental pearl tower in shanghai and so it's a if you and the, and they've made this photograph panable and, and and you can play around in it and so it looks it's like a, a vision from at the top of an incredibly high tower imagine being at the top of of one world trade and a, a photograph of all of new york and so you can then zoom and you zoom in on a street which a street which looks like a Tiny little hair thin strand off in the distance, and you zoom in on it. and You zoom in on it, and you realize, like, oh, I can now see the cars on that street and the
0: faces you zoom of the in people.
2: More. Get. Can I do my chatter? No, because
0: <laughs> you are taking if too that's long. That's my chatter. Of the point okay. of what possibly good thing can come out of this terrifying means of surveillance?
2: You have chatter
0: interrupted. Sorry.
2: <laughs> are you done? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I want that to was hear. Emily's I want to chatter. hear more from Emily, <laughs> not David.
0: Oh. <laughs> That is brutal. Continue.
2: <laughs> no, you <laughs> get it. That's it. I'm pouting now. No,
0: come on. What do you? Why are you ambivalent about this? No, I'm really I, curious. Oh, come on. No, well, he's
2: ambivalent because no, it's so like, neat. I, you said it's it's totally disturbing. You get to see people's faces, you know, from miles away and at, at this extraordinary resolution, and yet it's also marvelous because it's, it's just beautiful and weird and fun to play with. So that's all. That's all. You already said it, Emily. You made the point.
0: (laughs) I'm really sorry. I did not mean to take away the thrill of your chatter. And I did. And I apologize. Heartfelt
2: (laughs) apology. (laughs) My other secondary thing was that in the realm of pure joy, we'll post a link to this. There was on Mashable, a link to a video made by an Irish person in, in his home in Ireland where a bat has gotten in the home, and his his brother, his father, his friend Derry is trying to get the bat out of the kitchen, and I cannot tell you how unbelievably funny and joyful the process of watching this guy try to get a bat out of the kitchen is. It is. I was weeping. With pleasure I can't and wait to
0: watch this. John is like teeing it up as we speak.
3: What? Um. um how does one look for right it? On till one the one dog of the social pees. Media?
2: When the dog pees on the floor, that is just that's the highlight. When
3: one is looking for this? How does one find it?
2: Uh, it, I would look at bashable bat trapped in Irish bat.
3: family kitchen. I think is what you're talking
2: about. Yes, all right. That's that's it. That's the one.
1: John wants to watch um, it. Right you now.
2: have to, you have to listen with a volume. You can't oh, listen really? now. Yeah. It's not all it's right. not something you can watch. We'll you can see. watch and that's nice. But what's <laughs> the, the narration is what? Oh, okay. <laughs> what makes it all right? We'll so save joyful. it. Uh, there are uh, also we have listener chatter this week. Um, very nice listener chatters per usual. Ginny Boyton chattered about. An event in which, I, which I also had ambivalent feelings about, and the way I had ambivalent feelings about that photograph that Emily chattered about a minute ago, <laughs> which is that a group in a town of Stowe, Ohio, got together to wipe out nine thousand dollars worth of school lunch debt in, among their the students in their community, which is a very nice thing to do. It's great that these that, that all the all the school lunch debt in this in this community was wiped out, but. How messed up is it that we have this system of school lunch debt where kids can't graduate, where kids can't participate in extracurriculars, and where kids are stigmatized, they can't eat, the, they can't eat healthy food or they can't eat enough food because of this, this problem? And it's, it's, uh, it's a national disgrace, and it's, a, it's not – the solution to it isn't that parents in every community have to get together to wipe out the school lunch debt of everyone else. There has to be a better system, which I'm sure Emily has thoughts on.
1: I agree with you. Um,
2: But there's not a you don't have a public policy measure at hand. Often you have a public policy measure waiting in your back pocket. I don't
0: have a public policy measure waiting in my back pocket, but somebody should. And maybe someone will write in with a good one. How about that?
2: All right. That is our show for today. The Gap is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Audio. Acknowledging them for the first time, we have we've been le- leaving them out of the credits so cruelly, even though they're such they're so useful and wonderful and great colleagues to have. So thank you, June and Gabriel. You can follow us on Twitter at @gabfest and please tweet chatter at us. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Our Conundrum show is coming at you next week, and then we'll talk to you again about regular stuff in the new year. Bye bye. <laughs>
1: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
2: So, first it was Dade County.
1: Voters in the Miami area
3: repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin.
1: In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
2: And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene.
3: Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all.
1: A state senator from California watched the laws fall